Okay, let's pray. Let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your Lord's Day. We thank you for uh, the glory of the earth that testifies to your existence and power. Father, we pray that you would bless us this morning as we uh, contemplate your servants in history and uh, certainly as we come to uh, worship you, Father, that your, we ask that your spirit would be here guiding us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today I called an audible and uh, we were going to uh, study a guy named Martin Bootser, who was an early reformer, and uh, we're going to go from the continent over to England to study William Tyndale instead. I need a little bit more time on, on Bootser. And uh, maybe we'll come to him next week. Maybe I'll call another audible. I don't know. Uh, I think I'm supposed to do uh, this guy named John Calvin next Sunday. So I, 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 I can't skip over that. <clears throat> All right, so William Tyndale. What do, we, what do we know about William Tyndale before I teach you about him? Yeah. She was in his lineage. Okay. So that's what she, That's great. Doesn't help us today. Yes. The English Reformation, certainly one of the central figures of the English Reformation, early 16th century, right? What else? call him a pre-reformer, I would just call him a reformer. I mean, he's, he's contemporary with Luther, so um, we're not going to call him a pre-reformer. He's right in the middle of things at the start. And so, yeah, William Tyndale, we know him for the English Bible translation, really the, not the first man who had translated the Bible into English, but the first man who had translated certainly all of the New Testament and most of the Old Testament into English. He died before completing the Old Testament, but his New Testament was very in influential. And uh, so, a um, little bit to get us into this, um, Bible translation is very important. And Bible translation today has been uh, taken over by big business. It's a good money maker, right? New translation of the Bible will come out and it then becomes the cash cow for the publishing company. Uh, Christian publishing companies make their money on, on Bible translations and new Bible translations. Crossway was a small publisher, then the ESV came out and Crossway is huge now. 
um, because of that uh, translation. The, the work of translation committees, which is usually how translations are done today, is by large translation committees funded by somebody who has bucks, like a corporation, Zondervan, you know, something like that. Zondervan, who's owned by Rupert Murdoch um, and Random House Publishing, uh, did the NIV translation, 1984, you know, and then there have been uh, updates since then. And every new update is an, uh, is an opportunity to sell more Bibles. And so there's huge money in Bible translation today. And as you might expect, Bible translation is fraught with uh, dangers because... Uh, you know, every different Bible translation wants to find a niche in which to sell, right? You've got to have a demographic that you're aiming for. And so you, you slightly manipulate the words of Scripture in order to satisfy that niche audience. That's what Bible translation has become today, right? Oh, we want a translation for, for readers who, you know, have our, you know, like a five, fifth to seventh grade reading level. Right? Or we want to have a translation that um, doesn't offend feminists. So we're going to neuter everything in the Bible. Or we want a translation that's for kids with pictures of Jesus you know, in the midst of the translation. Or we want, I mean, one thing after another. We want a preacher's Bible. We want, um, you know, you name it, um, there's a new, a new spin on Scripture. Well, at this day and age, when William Tyndale lived, Roman Catholic Church was intent on keeping English translations out of the hands of the people. And it was, it was illegal to do what today everybody just does willy-nilly. Anybody in their bedroom by themselves can come up with their own translations of Scripture and put it on the Internet and get hits. Uh, when Tyndale was doing it, it was, it was forbidden It was forbidden. Now, um, here are the first words of a book that Tyndale wrote. So he he was a priest. He wasn't just a Bible translator. He was was working in the church. He was a pastor, a priest. And he wrote other books beyond these translations. He wrote a book called The Obedience of a Christian Man. And he said this, Let it not make thee despair, neither yet discourage thee, O reader, that that it is forbidden thee in pain of life and goods, or that it is made breaking of the king's peace or treason unto his highness to read the word of God of thy soul's health. He's like, don't despair, don't be discouraged. Even though this is illegal, this is your breath of life, this word of God. And you must have it, and you must give yourselves to it, and you must read it. We completely take this for granted, right? We, we all have, I mean, I, I have 20 different Bibles in my office right now. 20 different translations, 20 different printings, and we, uh, they're spread out in the pews here, right? They're, they're just, the Bible is everywhere. Not so in 1520 in England. Here's the setting. There was a pre-reformer named John Nope. Wycliffe. 
Huss is, you know, off on the continent. We're not going to worry about him. Um, we're going to stick to England. John Wycliffe. What are his dates? 1324 to 1384. That's a long time before this. This is, this is 200 years before Tyndale. Wycliffe is a, uh, a scholar at Oxford, and he begins translating the Bible. And he, he, uh, he's what are called, um, he, he was one of the guys that was sort of named uh, to insult them, the Lollards. Right? And the Lollards um, were not looked upon favorably. Constitutions of 1409 come along and uh, forbid any kind of translation responding to Wycliffe's work. Wycliffe also opposed things like transubstantiation. I mean, he truly was way ahead of, of Luther and the, the Reformation proper. So he was, he was into reforming the church uh, early on. And so, but the, the Roman Catholic Church was very hostile, had been a force even before Wycliffe in the 1380s in suppressing Scripture being translated into the vulgar tongue of those uh, in the lands. And so um, that's the backdrop. Tyndale picks up where Wycliffe left off. Now, Wycliffe was, was condemned as a heretic and, and, uh, and killed, and then they, his bones were buried, and they exhumed his bones and burned them again after he died. <laughs> so... The, the church was not a big fan of Mr. Wycliffe. Um, 1517 is when Luther's 95 theses are nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Castle. 1521 is the Diet of Worms, where Luther is excommunicated. And um, 1534... What happened in 1534 in England? Henry VIII makes his break with Rome. Okay, 1534. So 1521 to 1534, those, those dates is about when Tyndale is doing his work. Between, you know, the Diet of Worms and between Henry VIII breaking away and starting the Anglican Church. From 1525 to 1640, Daniel, which this book, if you want to do a deep dive in English translations of the Bible, this is the book you need to get. It's really good, really good reading. It's the Bible in English by David Daniel. He's a, I think he's an Oxford guy. It's published by Yale Press, but um, I don't know. We'd have, to, we'd have to pull up his Wikipedia. But this is the book you want to read if you care about English Bible translation. And he goes through the whole history of it. And uh, he says, he estimates that 2 million English Bibles were printed between 1525 and 1640. Now here's the deal, and I'm getting ahead of myself in saying this. Tyndale was excommunicated and martyred. Uh, by the Roman church, and it was just months after he died that, that the king 
allowed for English translations of the Bible. Just months after. And there was his work waiting to be, um, waiting to be reprinted again. Between 1526 and 1611, what did we get in that year? Yeah, the authorized version of the Bible. Between 1526 and 1611, 10 new English versions of the Bible were released, 211 different editions. In Germany, where Luther got the ball rolling, just a few, right? And that may be because of the excellence of Luther's work in the German Bible, which he translated. Uh, but, but in England, there was this proliferation this, uh, the, uh, of Bibles and versions of the Bible. A pre-Reformation Mass, and Daniel says, a pre-Reformation Mass was conducted at the distant altar by the priest, murmuring in Latin with his back to the people. That's what the Mass was, right? It's all performed in Latin. The priest has his back to the people. He's just doing his stuff up there, right? They lift the elements, and they're supposedly changed into the body and blood of Christ, and then, and then the people don't even participate in that, right? So, I mean, the back of the priest to the people, that's just like a metaphor for the, the Roman church's ministry. And then he says, in a post-Reformation service, the minister faced his congregation and addressed them in English. Right? Facing them, addressing them, acting as if they're sheep that need to be shepherded. Right? And the English Bible was um, important in that. Just a little more context, Shakespeare, 1564 to 1616, okay? Um, so, you know, he's born 40 years after Tyndale um, was doing his work. He's born in, and how do you say these things? Gloucestershire, you know? They just swallow the whole, you know, middle of words. Um, in 1494, he is in a well-connected family that uh, is in the wool trade. In 1512, he gets his Bachelor of Arts from the University of Oxford. In 1515, he gets an MA, which allows him to read theology, right? which would have led to a doctor of theology. Back in Gloucestershire, Gloucestershire, um, he worked as a tutor to the children of a knight, Sir John and Lady Walsh, at Little Sodbury Manor. At some point unknown, Tyndale, we don't even know, he was ordained as a priest. Okay, and just think about that fact. He's ordained as a priest, and all the early reformers were priests of the Roman Catholic Church. They were trained in Thomas Aquinas. They read Peter Lombard's sentences. They went through that training that, um, that Renton told us about several uh, weeks ago. And so he's ordained as a priest. So was, so was Luther. So was Calvin. So was Bootser. So was all these early reformers. The, their definitive break from the Roman Catholic Church is when they got married. <laughs> Right. Um, <clears throat> the Lollards were, were beginning to cause trouble, pointing out the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. And then Tyndale's famous quote. 
Does everybody know Tyndale's, what he's famed for saying? He, he said to a man who's reported, um, this man came up to him and said, we, we were uh, better without God's law than the Pope's law, right? It'd be better for us to have the Pope's law than it would be to have God's law. And um, Master Tyndale, hearing that, answered him, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and said, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scripture than you do. I mean, you think about that quote. That was, that was his goal, is to get the Bible into the hands of the plowboy, into the hands of the common people, into the hands of everybody who could read, right? And even those who couldn't. <laughs> Just get the Bible out in English. Now, this is, a, this is a Reformed principle, right? Is the Bible translated into the vulgar tongue of the people, into the vernacular language. This was a commitment of the Reformation. So the first things that happened in these countries that were reforming in these city-states is the, the Bible came in their own language. Just think of that. The Roman Catholic priest with his back to the, to the people, cherry-picking verses and then only sharing them in Latin. I mean, there would be complete ignorance of the Scriptures. Complete ignorance of the Scriptures. And so now, now everything's translated and the printing press hits about the same time, shortly before this. And there's just this explosion of Scripture uh, out into the world. And people are reading the Bible for the first time. And not just cherry-picking verses that support the, or supposedly support the magisterium, but reading what Jesus said. Reading what the Apostle Paul said and wrote, those letters to the churches for the first time. Imagine, you would imagine that the powers that be would be really nervous. Really nervous. And they react like they're really nervous. So he ends up in London. He arrives in 1523 in order to talk with someone who he thought would help him publish an English New Testament. Cuthbert, <laughs> that's an English name, Cuthbert Tunstall, Bishop of London. So he's going there and he's trying to get permission. He's trying to get, uh, get help to uh, do this work. Tunstall declined but didn't persecute him. So he came to him and said no, but he didn't turn him over to the, the Inquisition. Tyndall stayed in London for about a year. He was preaching there. And then he realized that he had to leave London if he was going to do this work of translation. He's going to have to get out of there because there's just too, there, the, there's too many people watching. Uh, the... the the climate against it is too harsh, and so he realizes he has to get out of there. And where does he go? Germany. He goes to Germany in 1524. He goes to Antwerp. He spends some time in Worms as well. 
And so he's in Germany where, you know, um, there's much more freedom to go about this work and printers that would be willing to print. He's also in the city of Cologne, right, 1525. There's no evidence he met with Luther or went to Wittenberg, but they knew of one another, right? They, the, all these reformers were very tight. A lot of them wrote letters to one another, and that's an interesting aspect of the Reformation. But we don't have much evidence that he met with Luther or went to see him in Wittenberg. Um, in Cologne, he works with a printer, getting out basically a translation of the Gospel of Matthew. That's the first thing that gets out of there and gets out of the printer's shop. And the printer's shop was then raided and shut down. And this little printing of the Matthew is called the Cologne Fragment. He escapes. He goes up to the city of Worms and another printer, Peter Schaffer, and takes up the English New Testament. And the first complete run is done the following year, 1526. That's the year where we get the first... Trans, English translation of the New Testament, 1526, okay? And, and here's, here, he, here are his sources. It's fully translated from the Greek, not from the Latin, okay? What the, the Latin, you know, was, was an age-old work that the, the, the Roman church had used, but Erasmus, you know Erasmus, had uh, gone, going back to the sources, um, brought together a critical edition of the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, not Latin. And so that's what Tyndale works from, is from Erasmus's work. He translates from the Greek. Um, this, this 1526 Bible is pocket-sized, you know, which is really cool, which makes it easier to hide. Right? I think that's probably the purpose of that. It's pocket-sized. It's pro- I mean, pocket-sized. It's probably, you know, six by nine, something like that. And it has no prologue. It has no margin notes. It doesn't have any kind of attribution to Tyndale. <laughs> Again, purposefully, because he knew uh, the, the political climate that was going on. Um, also... Uh, also, a certain amount of humility, right? It scandalizes me that John MacArthur would put his name on a translation of the Bible and print it on every one of the Bibles that's printed. Oh, okay, I'm not going to say any more about that. But notice Tyndale, one, to protect himself, different political climate, I get that, but there's no attribution at all. There's not even like a fake name, right? Or a Latinized name or something that... Um, Nothing. It was smuggled down the Rhine and into England and Scotland, packed in bales of cloth, stuffed in there, brought in indiscriminately. Copies circulated quickly around England and Scotland. In 1526, Bishop Tunstall Right? That's the man that he had gone to earlier to ask for permission and realized he had to get out of Dodge. 1526, Bishop Tunstall um, sent out a prohibition of the book, quote, in the English tongue that, that pestiferous and most pernicious poison dispersed through all of our diocese of long in great number. Um, 
So he's calling this poison being spread throughout England. The word of God in English. A bishop, right? Poison. Uh, October 27th, 1526, Tunstall, Bishop Tunstall, arranged for a burning of Tyndale's New Testament at St. Paul's Cathedral. And they round up most of the copies, not all of them. I think there are two copies of this that, that exist still, just two. But they round up as many as they can find, and they have a fire outside of St. Paul's Cathedral of the Word of God in English. <clears throat> Uh, Daniel makes the statement, he says, Tyndale later noticed that the church was so devoted to the search for heresy in what he wrote, though previously they ignored Scripture. Now they examined his translation so closely that they would, have, they would announce to the ignorant people that it was heresy if he failed to dot an I. And this is the funny thing. I mean, here they are now having to search the Word of God, having to actually go to the sources and check it with the Greek and the Latin and all these things, and they're actually doing Bible study because of, of Tyndale's work. And, and, and what they did, if they found a printer's error, if they found anything, right, they would point it out and say that this is heresy, right? Um, and so over-scrupulous in that, but I thought it was humorous that they were Finally, in the Word of God. May 1527, the Archbishop of Canterbury asked all his bishops to share the cost of buying up copies in order to burn them. Right? So printers are bringing them in, they're being, you know, and so now they're, now they're going to try to buy them up and burn them. Well, as much, I mean, it's not like print runs today, it's rather hard to, to print massive amounts, but nonetheless, yeah, what's coming in is being snatched up. Yeah, yeah, they would have. <clears throat> um, many people, many of the citizens of England would be arrested for reading Tyndale's translation at, um, during the next five years. Daniel makes this remark. He says, What had been hidden in Latin for many centuries and for much of that time confined to monasteries was now suddenly and for the first time available to everybody. Though Christian people in Britain were certainly aware of the great events of the Christian calendar, Advent, Christmas, Lent, Easter, Whitsuntide, many of the words of Jesus in the Gospel and almost all of the writings of St. Paul were unknown to the common man or woman. I mean, think about that. We just, we take it for granted that we have this word. This is 1520s. The word of God has been around for a long time. Old Testament, long time. New Testament, long time. And they are just now, these people, I mean, think of the wickedness of suppressing God's word like that. It is true, he goes on, that the church allowed to circulate certain harmonies of the Gospels in considerable numbers after the coming of printing, but these contained little of the Gospels and a great deal of modern material. 
To have the four Gospels complete and accurate to the Greek originals was a revelation to the ordinary British Christian. To have as well the complete letters of St. Paul was revolutionary. Paul's epistle to the Romans in particular spells out the heart of Christian theology with its strong emphasis on justification by faith. Though the church authorities tried to prevent the spreading of Tyndale's testaments, they did not succeed in spite of public burnings. There are records from most parts of the country of groups of people meeting to read and hear the words so newly arrived. Oh, that's so sweet, right? Getting together just to hear the word of God read. Puzzlement about how the English became so quickly Protestant, the word was not used until in the modern sense until the 1550s, can be solved by considering the arrival of the whole of Paul's epistles in print and in English. Right? That's how England became so Protestant so quickly. They had the word of God. They had Paul, especially. They had Paul. Okay, so all of this is going on in Germany. Um, he's getting their smuggling Bibles back into England. They're being snatched up. They're being bought by the Roman Catholics and taken and burns, they're putting in prison those who own these copies or have access to these copies. And so it's very intense. In 1531, Thomas Cromwell gets involved in this. And Thomas Cromwell makes an appeal to the king to protect Tyndale. Right? Thomas Cromwell. Uh, Thomas Cromwell's emissary came to Tyndale in Germany and told him that Henry VIII believed the country would be safer if Tyndale were in England and at court. Tyndale suspected a trap, and he refused to go. He refused to go back to England. He, he thought he was being trapped. This happened three times. He refused to go back. Thought he was being set up. In 1534, then, Tyndale's revised New Testament comes out. So 1526 was the original, 1534, that's what, seven years, eight years where he's been working on it and perfecting it. So 1534 that comes out, 83% of that, of the King James Version New Testament is directly from that version, right? The authorized version took most of its material from Tyndale's translation, right? And... um, Directly from that version, 83%. In 1535, still in Antwerp, an Englishman who simply wanted money worked his way into Tyndale's life. Just befriended him. Got to know him, spent time with him. On May 21st, 1535, this man named Phillips alerted the imperial officers and lured Tyndale out of his house In the alley beside the house, he was seized, and Tyndale was taken to the castle of Vilvord, outside Brussels, where he was incarcerated for the next 16 months. He would have no candles, he would have no books. Some people posit that he worked on the Old Testament during that time, but um, Daniel makes the point that it's, it's highly improbable that he was able to do any work because of the conditions of the prison that he was in. He wouldn't have access to pens and paper and, and uh, everything that he would have needed to uh, Hebrew um, Old Testaments and, and whatnot. 
Uh, Tyndale was interrogated by the procurer general, this guy named Pierre Dufif, a magistrate of evil reputation. And here's the twisted part, Pierre Dufif. Do you think it was profitable for him to hunt down heretics? Oh, you better believe it because they had made a deal with him that he received a portion of everything that he confiscated from heretics. So he was motivated, right? He was motivated by money to hunt down heretics because he was going to get a part of their property. Tyndale's crime with which he was prosecuted was being a Lutheran, right? Shorthand for rejecting the Roman Catholic Church being a Protestant. He was tried by 17 commissioners led by three chief accusers at their head, the greatest heresy hunter in Europe, a man named Jacobus Latimus. Tyndale declined representation and did his own defense. And guess what he used to defend himself? Scripture alone. That's all he used. He got up and defended himself with Scripture. Um, August 1536, he was condemned as a heretic. October 1536, and they think it may have happened a week or two before that, so it could be that, you know, it was this date in 1536, um, around this time of year. He was, a stake, brushwood, and logs were prepared. Tyndale was brought out, a chain was placed around his neck. He gave a cry that Fox in Fox's Book of Martyrs records here. Does anybody know what he cried out before he was killed? That's right. Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And the eyes of the King of England, in some sense... <laughs> were open shortly after he died because he allowed English Bibles. Tyndale was not burned alive. As a mark of his distinction as a scholar, he was strangled first, and then his body was burned, which is a distinction they gave to the scholars. I mean, it is much better to be, you know, strangled than burned alive, but it is not pleasant to be strangled, I assume. But they did offer him that, and then he was burnt. So within two months of Tyndale's martyrdom, a complete English Bible, two-thirds of it Tyndale's work, was licensed by Henry VIII and was circulating in Britain. During his life, he wrote to his friend John Frith, I call God to record against the day we shall appear before our Lord Jesus that I never altered one syllable of God's word against my conscience. Nor would do this day if all that is in earth, whether it be honor, pleasure, or riches, might be given me. And we, we have Bible translators of the most sophisticated PhDs who take embarrassment at what God's Holy Spirit has inspired and removes word after word after word. The, the, the English Standard Version gets mealy-mouthed on homosexuality. 
the new international version, recent versions take out gender neutral everything. The New American Standard 2020 edition takes, gets embarrassed about the word man and father and takes those out. Right? So you see, you see that the, the conscience, unlike Tyndale's conscience, uh, was not bound, is not bound today as it was. Right? And, and he had more at stake than modern Bible translators. The only thing that modern Bible translators have at stake is how much cash they're going to get based upon their copyrighted version of God's Word and their consciences uh, aren't afflicted at all by changing God's Word. And here's Tyndale who gave up his life, died at the stake, burned, burned as a heretic, lost everything, who wouldn't alter one of God's words against his conscience. Let that be a lesson to us, right? Let that be a lesson to us. Now, I want to share with you uh, where is it? Here's, well, I'll go here first. Uh, this is from a biography of William Tyndale, again by David Daniel. So, this is the guy you need to read if you care about William Tyndale. Uh, this, this book is much more readable than this one, though, I don't, for some reason. <clears throat> Here's what he says. It was the Greek, speaking of the actual product that Tyndale produced, it was the Greek and English, the common koine of the first century Mediterranean in the common spoken language of England. So it's not high English. The Greek is not high Greek. Koine Greek is the Greek of the street, right? Uh, the, the inspired word is not uh, some sort of ecclesiastical Greek. It's, it's common Greek. And, um, and so he translated into the common spoken language of England. Phrase after phrase after phrase come from, the English, from English life as lived in the 1520s by English people. Quote, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. No man can serve two masters. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. And the floods came and the winds blew. As sheep having no shepherd, give unto one of these little ones to drink a cup of cold water only. These phrases here, taken at random from the early chapters of Matthew, would have been on the sheets of the abandoned Cologne edition and possibly were therefore already familiar to some readers. But here were no longer scattered fragments, but the whole thing, the precious first century documents in which the Christian faith was first formulated in modern English. He gives this example. So I'm reading now from Tyndale's 1534 New Testament. Listen to this. This is the story of the prodigal son. And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my part of the goods that to me belongeth. And he divided unto them his substance. And not long after, the younger son gathered all that he had together and took his journey into a far country And there he wasted his goods with riotous living. And when he had spent all that he had, there rose a great dearth throughout all the same land, and he began to lack. 
And he went and clave to a citizen of that same country, which sent him to his field to keep his swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the cods that the swine ate, and no man gave him. Then he came to himself and said, How many hired servants at my father's have bread enough, and I die for hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he rose and went to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But his father said to his servants, Bring forth the best garment and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither that fatted calf and kill him and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And they began to be merry. The elder brother was in the field, and when he came and drew drew nigh to the house, he heard minstrelsy and dancing, and called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Then came his father out and entreated him. He answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years have I done thee service. Neither break at any time thy commandments, and yet gavest thou me never so much as a kid to make merry with my lovers. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy goods with harlots, thou hast for his pleasure killed the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou wast ever with me, And all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So you see, it's very readable. It's very common to what we uh, have sort of ingested through the authorized version of Scripture from 1611, right? And remember, that's 83% Tyndale's work there. And so um, I'm sure there, there are copies of this that uh, uh, you could find out there if you wanted to read Tyndale's version. Um, let me think, is there anything, are there any questions? Any questions about, yeah, go for it. Oh, for mistranslating the Bible. I mean, for, for uh, not, not producing a version of the Bible that corresponded to the Latin that had protected the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church for a long time. So he's a heretic right at the source, you know. Yeah, so I, I just, you know, instead of... Um, and I mean, he used instead of church throughout the New Testament for ecclesia, he used the word congregation. You know, 
I mean, you can understand um, why he would do that based upon the meaning of the Greek, but also based on uh, his context. Um, so anyway, that's William Tyndale. He's, he's a, he should be a hero of yours. I'd have to go back and, and find that, figure that out. Um, the, the Geneva Bible was a different, the Geneva Bible was a completely different production and it preceded the, the 18, 1611 authorized version. It was wildly popular. The Geneva version was, was probably the, the most popular English Bible uh, between Tyndale and the authorized version. Um, it was widely used by the English speakers. I'm sure they borrowed from Tyndale. Stole. Right. No copyrights. Yeah. That's right, that's right. And, and, and it's just an adherence to tradition that doesn't lead to knowledge of the word. Chuck, I see your hand. Yeah. That's right. Import it. That's right. I mean, they had to, to deal with the Greek, they had to, they had to coin words. I mean, Tyndale came up with, I, I don't have the list, but I, I could find it, words that we take for granted, and Tyndale was the one who, you know, coming from the Greek, had to figure out how to express this in English. And they're, they're words that we use today, you know, and so Luther had to do the same thing. Um, I mean, the, the Apostle Paul did the same thing because he was writing Scripture in Greek. He, he coined words um, to express the Hebrew that he knew. And so this is, a, this is a common theme. But there's a way to do it and a way not to do it. There's a way to be committed to the word of God as inspired and inerrant and a way to approach it as a, a wax nose that you can manipulate in order to please those who will get the finished product. And those are at odds. Be quick, we gotta finish. Yeah.
Oh yeah, they they there were uh, there were copies hidden away, you know, and uh, they weren't all found, and so it it continued to exist. They did their best to stamp it out, but they they couldn't uh, they couldn't keep it down. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We we do praise you that we can read this in English. We thank you for the work of William Tyndale so many years ago, 500 years ago. Lord, I pray that we would uh, read your word, that we would uh, love it, that we would study it, that it would dwell within us richly. And Father, we ask that you would guide us as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.